Right. Good morning. Will you please stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word? This morning's scripture comes from Galatians 5, 16 through 18. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This is the word of the Lord. morning. We ought to bring Paul Dawkins back up and let him just preach the whole message, right? So my name is Thaddeus, and I have the privilege and honor of serving as an elder here at the Springs. I've been in this church since 2011, and God has done an incredible thing in my life and um, in many people who, who are here. And I just want to take a moment to honor Pastor Alberto. He's the lead pastor. He is not here this Sunday, but he may be watching, so i got to be on my best behavior. Can't do anything too crazy. Um, but if somebody feels the spirit, you want to get up and run around a couple times, and feel free to do so. So Pastor Alberto is incredible. God has done an amazing work in his life, and I got the privilege to see God just really transform him from the very beginning. And he is a great husband. He is a great dad. He is a great friend. He is a great brother, son. And he loves this church so deeply. And he loves this city deeply as well. And so thank you, Alberto, for allowing me to preach this morning, brother. You can clap for Alberto. (laughs) Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, God, that you are so good. You are so loving and amazing and kind. And you embody all the fruit of the Spirit, Lord. And we pray that you would help us to do the same and that you'd bless the words that come come out of my mouth this morning, God, and um, they would be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So there was a story on the news station KUT in March of this year about a unique event in Austin, Texas's history. From 1986 to 1988, there was an annual tug-of-war event that was held on Town Lake, which is now Lady Bird Lake. This tug-of-war was North Austin versus South Austin. That was awesome, right? The purpose was for a fundraiser, but it presented many logistical challenges that needed to be addressed considering there were going to be 500 people on either side of this rope trying to pull each other into the lake. Tug of war to some may seem like a harmless childhood game, and even in the early 1900s, it was an Olympic sport. But tug of war is actually a very good description considering how dangerous and potentially fatal this game actually is. Before they could pull off this annual event, they had to hire an engineer to develop a mechanism that could handle the force being generated through the rope with over 1,000 people pulling on this rope. If you think about a rubber band, the rope is like a rubber band. When a rubber band pops, it stings and hurts for a minute. Think about 1,000 people pulling on a rubber band and the force being generated and what kind of pop that would be. In 1995, German Boy Scouts were trying to set a world record, and the rope snapped and killed two boys. In Taipei in 97, 
The tug of war resulted in two men breaking and severing their left arms. As we begin our text here in Galatians, we see a similar tension being presented. This tug of war between the spirit and the flesh that are in opposition to one another. And if we, and if you may, and, excuse me, and whether you recognize it or not, we're all being pulled in one direction or another at some point in time. Sometimes we reach a breaking point like that rope and we end up walking towards God or we end up walking away from him. Paul is keenly aware of this tension and he expounds on it in several of his letters to the churches in the New Testament. And here we see it again to the church in Galatia who they were initially doing really well with following the leading of the Spirit, but later they allowed lies to infiltrate the truth that they firmly held once to. So I have three main points this morning. The first one is the works of the flesh that lead to death. The second is the fruit of the Spirit that leads to life. And the third is how to grow in the fruit. Let's look closer at verses 16 and 17. It reads, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. To understand what Paul is saying here, we need to know a few definitions. The word flesh here is a term that is referring to the part of our heart that is bent towards sin or the sinful nature of our heart. The part of us that gets jealous or feels greedy or has an over-desire for something. Maybe you, like me, know these emotions all too well. And the word spirit here is defined as the renewed Christian heart, the part of us that has contentment towards God that is humble, that is generous. And the word desires that is used here literally refers to an over-desire for something, even something good, which is also known as idolatry, which is placing something or someone else in the place of God, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Paul says that these desires of the flesh, of the spirit, are against the flesh, and the flesh against the spirit, and they are opposed to each other to keep us from doing the things we want to do. You see, the Christian actually wants to live for God. Just as the flesh has desires, the spirit also has desires. The spirit highlights and reminds us of who Jesus is. The spirit teaches us and leads us to all truth. The spirit wants to glorify God. But for the believer, there's an internal tug of war where the Christian's transformed heart seeks to please God because you love him, but the flesh of the sinful nature also pulls us in the opposite direction. Like when you know you should be honest and have a loving but truthful discussion with someone, but instead you're passive aggressive. Or like when you know you should prioritize your time to best honor God's direction in your life, but instead you give in to pleasing people and things you know God has not called you to. This tug of war is something Paul experienced himself which is recorded in Romans. He says, For I delight in the law of God, in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war 
against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Now, Paul doesn't simply leave it up to our imagination of what it actually means or looks like to be led by the flesh or our sin nature. He gives us a list of 15 works of the flesh, which is not a complete list of every kind of sin, but it is fairly comprehensive. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality or debauchery, idolatry, sorcery or witchcraft, enmity or hatred, strife or discord, jealousy, fits of anger, rage, rivalries or selfish selfish ambition, dissensions, divisions or factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. There's no mystery or anything hidden as to what these things are. The Bible is very clear on what the sinful heart looks like externally, meaning the things that we can see with our own eyes that are not from God, and also internally, meaning the attitudes and motives and the things that drive our external behavior. What is often viewed as normal and natural by both non-Christians and even some renewed Christians sometimes in our American society, the Bible identifies that these things are actually unnatural, and they actually go against the very reason that God created us. If you talk with most people who you meet in San Marcos and some surrounding cities, and you ask them about this list, many things on this list might be considered the norm or completely natural. But the Bible speaks an entirely different message. One thing that all these works of the flesh have in common is the potential to tarnish relationships, marriages, friendships, work relationships, separate families, and divide churches, which is what we see here in Galatians. Now, some people also break down the works of the flesh into two different groups of people. Group one, they say, is the non-Christians, or people who participate in the works of the flesh that involve external and more obvious sins like sexual impurity, drunkenness, etc. And group two would be the Christians, whose sins are more internal and less easily seen at times, such as destructive attitudes or motives. So this is not saying that only non-Christians commit these types of sins and Christians commit only these other types of sins. It's grouped this way to prevent Christians from thinking they're better if their sin seems less obvious. So breaking these down into these two groups can help us to realize that the list Paul gives us does not allow either group to point the finger at the other. Those who are not religious are faced with the reality that the practice of the works Paul mentions do not lead to the inheritance of the kingdom of God. And those who are religious must acknowledge that there is no partiality or favoritism given here in the scriptures for sins that are more internal or less obvious as being better or more forgivable. Both the religious and the non-religious are called to be introspective rather than to think someone else or another group or another type of person is the problem. If you just read this verse with no context, then you may think that if you have committed one of the works of the flesh, then your inheritance is squandered. But that's not what Paul is saying here. 
he is actually referring to the regular habitual practice of the works of the flesh. Meaning if someone has no battle in them against the, against the flesh, and they're not walking in regular repentance or trying to fight back, then this is an indication that the Spirit has not renewed that person. Paul is not trying to make people question if they're saved or not saved. Rather, his aim is to stir up Christians, to galvanize them, to seek God and not fall victim to being complacent or stagnant. If we keep reading in verse 18, Paul makes a profound statement. He says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. This means that if you are being led by the flesh, then not only will you fall into these works of the flesh, but the sinful nature of the heart will also cause you to believe that your way to defeat the flesh is to work harder. You see, the sinful heart functions as if what Jesus did on the cross has no meaning or significance. So you can find yourself in this endless cycle of choosing sin and then not trusting in God, which is sin, and then so on. When you read Paul's letters to the churches in the New Testament, although the verbiage is different at times, the message is extremely consistent, which revolves around two things. The first is that sin is real. It's a thing. Attitudes, actions, motivations, and desires that are against God and how he created us. And Paul lists those things out regularly in multiple letters. The second thing is that there are no rituals, traditions, habits, or amount of good things that you can do in your own strength and intellect that will cancel out your sin and put you in good relationship with God. He says it doesn't work that way. It is only God's free gift of grace and you receiving that gift in faith in Jesus and, and believing in Jesus and everything that he did that cancels out your sin and puts you in a good relationship with God. Paul knows this because he was a leader in the church who used to persecute Christians because he did not yet realize who Jesus is and what it meant for Jesus to die on the cross for our sins until Jesus opened his eyes and opened his heart. Paul was not actually honoring God. Rather, he was falling farther out of relationship with God and pushing others farther out of relationship with him as well. And I think this is why Paul is so adamant about what he shares next about the fruit of the Spirit and how it relates to relationships and loving other people. So my second point this morning is the fruit of the Spirit. Verse 22 reads, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Before we fully dive into the fruit, it is worth mentioning the context that led up to Paul talking about the works of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit in the first place. The previous verses which, which Alberto preached on last week, they read like this. Don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. The entire law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Paul inserts a major message that we must not overlook or we will miss some of the great meaning in this text. 
First, he says, not to use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Meaning, don't allow the freedom that you have in Christ to be a launch pad for sin or self-righteousness. You see, there was someone in the Galatian church that was doing this. They began to preach that males had to be circumcised to be accepted into the family of God, which was a lie that led people astray and began to trash relationships. Which is why Paul says next that the whole law is simply fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Where have we heard this command before? And how is it possible to fulfill the entire law, which talks about the 613 commandments that we see in the Old Testament, by just loving our neighbor? We see this mentioned all the way back in Leviticus. But later in history, we see this during Jesus' ministry in several of the gospel accounts. When Jesus is asked, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. So here, Paul says the whole law is summed up in loving our neighbor as ourselves. Why does he say this? What about the first commandment that Jesus just talked about? Is he forgetting about it? Is Paul trying to do his own thing? Of course not. Paul has such a deep understanding of these two great commandments. Let me tell you why. He knows that, one, you cannot perform the second greatest commandment without first being successful in the first one, which is to love God with everything. That has to be the foundation by which we love others. The second reason I believe Paul says this is because the new covenant and life of the spirit has called us to a different standard than the old covenant under the law. In the past, they could judge more easily if someone, was, if someone loved God by how they observed the law. Did they perform the right sacrifices? Did they eat the right food? Did they prepare it the right way, etc.? But the gauge or litmus test if you love God under the new covenant, is most easily observed not by how often somebody goes to church, not by what you give up for Lent, not by what you say or how you pray, not what your appearance looks like, not what you eat and how it's prepared, not if by the world standards you are a good person or not, but the gauge and litmus test is simply how you treat your neighbor. Because the Bible would say that these things are all-encompassing, meaning... That if you love your neighbor as yourself, then that is a sign that you love God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. You cannot have one without the other. And since Paul is speaking to church folk who are acting dysfunctional like we tend to do sometimes, he wants to be very clear that what you do or say carries no weight compared to how you treat your neighbor. These days, it's not about sacrifices to God, but our sacrifice in deferring to others reveals our understanding of his sacrifice for us. The same way that Paul speaks about the second commandment is how he speaks about the fruit. This is probably why Paul uses the singular noun, fruit of the Spirit, rather than the plural, fruits of the Spirit. When Paul spoke about the flesh, he used the plural, works. Are, and he listed all those off. 
But now that he's speaking about the fruit, he says, the fruit of the Spirit is. Almost as if they're just one thing. In other words, instead of speaking of them as multiple fruits like an apple, a banana, a mango, a pineapple, an orange, a kiwi, he speaks of all, the, all of them as if they're all apples. Martin Luther explains it like this. It would have been enough to mention only the single fruit of love, for love embraces all the fruit of the Spirit. And this is consistent with what Paul was talking about in the first place when he said to love your neighbor as yourself. Because Paul knows the secret. And the secret is, if you want to walk by the Spirit rather than the flesh, then love has to come first. If you ask someone on the college campus, a student or professor or a coworker or your neighbor or somebody who you meet today at HEB, and you say, hey, can you tell me what the definition of love is? Can you define love? You're likely to hear many different definitions that probably are not going to be found in the scriptures. You might hear, love is sacrifice. Love is commitment. You might even hear, love is sex. And you're probably going to hear, love is accepting everyone and everything they stand for. But that's not how the Bible speaks about love. Love in the Bible is a person. That person is God. John says that God is love, meaning that everything that God does comes from his love. Also, the love that the scripture speaks about here in the fruit is called agape love, which means to serve a person for their good and intrinsic value and not for what that person can do for you. And although there are nine fruits that he lists, they are all truly just different expressions of the first fruit, which is love. Tim Keller's description of the fruit is helpful here. Let's take joy. Joy is delight in God for the sheer beauty and worth of who he is. Peace is confidence and rest in the wisdom and control of God. Patience is the ability to face trouble without blowing up or lashing out. And what about kindness? Does your kindness look like the ability to serve others practically in a way which makes you vulnerable, which comes from having a deep inner security? Or do you have goodness or integrity, which means being the same person in every situation rather than a phony or a hypocrite? This doesn't mean just getting things off your chest because you keep it real. How's your faithfulness? Do you have loyalty or courage to be utterly reliable and true to your word? What about gentleness? Are you humble or are you self-absorbed? And how is your handle and control on self-control? Which is the ability to pursue the important over the urgent rather than always being impulsive or uncontrolled. And this is not the same thing as willpower which comes from pride. How do we know that we have these fruit? And if we don't have them, how do we get them? For years, I regularly misinterpreted this verse about the fruit. If someone was a Christian and they were struggling with self-control, I would say something like, as believers, we have access to the fruit of the Spirit. All you have to do is tap into what God has already provided for you, and then you can exhibit that fruit in your life. 
I spoke about the fruit as if there was a fruit of the spirit fruit tree that was growing in every Christian's backyard. And if you ever lacked in one of the fruit, you could just walk out back and pick one of them, eat it, and then you would exhibit that fruit in your life. One day, my wife, Tessa, confronted me, as she tends to do sometimes. And she said, I think that the way that you're interpreting that verse is not actually what it means. And her statement caught me off guard. I had not considered that I'd been communicating that scripture incorrectly. But the more I thought about it, the more I realized realized that she was right. It sounds silly to me saying this out loud now, but I think the idea that Christians have an endless supply of spiritual fruits that they can grab at any given moment is probably not what the scripture is teaching here. You see, before fruit grows, it starts in seed form. It must be planted, watered, receive light from the sun, and then it begins to grow. And it grows as we grow in our relationship with God and in our relationships with others. And as a result, the fruit will become more evident and more obvious in our lives. The fruit of the Spirit also should not be confused with personality traits or natural gifting. For example, you may know somebody who is the kindest person you've ever met in your life. But just because they're very kind does not mean that that is the fruit of the Spirit. You see, the fruit of the Spirit don't present themselves individually. If kindness is there, then self-control and patience and gentleness and faithfulness and all the others should be there as well. Because as love grows, all the fruit grow together. One fruit does not grow without the other. And the way that the spiritual fruit grows should give you confidence because if you are a Christian, the fruit has no choice but to grow in your life. Why is that? Because it's not from you. It's from the Spirit. If you walk outside this church next door to the vet clinic, you'll see that there is a a huge tree like right in the middle of their parking lot. And whoever planted this tree, they did it on purpose. They put it in this specific spot designated for the tree. But if you look around the tree outside of that designated place, you can realize that this person didn't think that this tree was going to grow outside of this space. And you know that because the ground is cracked and it's raised and the tree is literally growing up through the ground with its roots. And in a similar way, how this seed that started can bust through asphalt is just how the seed of the fruit that's planted can bust and break through hardened hearts. But if we are newer in our relationship with Christ or we're struggling in it, the growth of these fruit may be dormant for quite some time. On the flip side, there may even be times where the fruit is so evident and obvious in one moment and you think, man, I've come so far in my walk as a Christian. I remember years ago, if I were in the same situation, I would have responded so poorly. I am kicking sin in the devil's butt. And then in the next moment, something happens in you realize, where'd the fruit go? This makes me think about getting Lily ready for bed at night. You know, have a long day, come home, have a nice dinner, everything's kind of chill, and then she needs to take a bath, she needs to brush her teeth, she needs to 
you know, get her diaper changed. And she's doing everything in her power, throwing all kinds of fits, being counterproductive to everything that I want to do. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And so what happens? Well, instead of loving her well and exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit, I yell at her harshly, which ends up making her cry more. And then I get mad at myself, and then it's just a worse situation. And so when I had the fruit, I came home in a good mood. Quickly, the fruit can seem like it vanishes. I've been talking so much about the fruit of the Spirit, but who is the Spirit that gives us this fruit that makes it possible for us to be more like Christ and to love our neighbor? We believe that God is three distinct persons in one, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that it is better that he leave so that the helper, the Holy Spirit, could come. It is one thing to walk with Jesus in person like the original disciples, but it's a whole other miracle for God's Holy Spirit to be with us everywhere we go. The Holy Spirit leads us to all truth. He gives us supernatural power to walk in the direction of our renewed hearts rather than to follow the desires and gratify the flesh. He lets us know if we are doing something that is not pleasing to God and also gives us gifts with which we can celebrate God's goodness and encourage others. He fills us and surrounds us with God's presence. He helps this fruit of the Spirit to grow in us that we may love one another with God's holy agape love. So now we've gotten a closer look at the heart of why Paul said, but I say, walk by the Spirit. I hope it's clear that there's something here regarding healthy relationships that we can't miss. There can be no truly good relationships between you and others or between you and God without growing in the fruit and walking by the Spirit. Question for you this morning, church. Are you perfectly walking by the Spirit and just seeing the fruit flourish in your lives? Loving others the way that God has called us to love? Of course not. But let's take a look at what has been done and what can be done about that. It's simple, but it's not easy. Let's look at the ABCs of how to grow in the fruit and walk by the Spirit. My final point this morning is how we grow in the fruit. How we grow in the fruit. After Paul identifies the fruit of the Spirit, he gives us some insight in how to grow in it. Let's read the next few verses. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So the ABCs of how to grow in the fruit and walk by the Spirit are abide, belong, and crucify. Abide, belong, and crucify. Senior pastor of Every Nation Singapore, Joey Bonifacio, in his book, The Lego Principle, describes how he was finally convinced that love is the first blessing of fruitfulness. It comes from John 15, when Jesus speaks of how the fruit of love grows in our lives through our relationship with him. John chapter 15, verses 4 through 5 and verse 9 read, Abide in me, and I in you. 
as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is it that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 9, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Pastor Bonifacio says that according to Jesus, one must remain in the vine to bear fruit, and he is that vine. On our own, we are not capable of producing anything. By remaining in a relationship with him, we will bear much fruit. Then Jesus specifies even further when he says in verse 9, don't just abide in me, abide in my love. Jesus goes on to say that we abide in his love by keeping his commandments. Now, you may think, this is the reason I'm in this mess in the first place. I can't keep his commandments. But he only gives us one. He says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. How did Jesus love us? He laid down his life to save and show his love for the very people that took his life. And Jesus calls us to love others in the same way. Through Jesus laying down his life, though him laying down his life was literal, he was hung on the cross and he died the death that we deserve in our place. For us, it's not literal like that. Karen Jobes in her commentary talks about what laying down our lives looks like for us. She reminds us to call to mind the story of the Good Samaritan and how in 1 John 3, 17, it says that, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? So for us, abiding in Christ looks like meeting the basic needs of others. Whether you like them or not, God has called us to love them in this way. Belong. We must not forget who we belong to. The scripture says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus. My daughter and I play this game called, what's that? What's that? The game is simple. She points at an object and she says, what's that? And I tell her what it is, and sometimes she'll repeat exactly what I say. But other times, if I point at like a baby bottle, she'll say, Momo. Because Momo, she knows it's her brother, and she knows that that bottle belongs to him. Or if I point at a coffee mug, she'll say, Mama, because she knows the coffee belongs to Mama. Mama's working hard. <clears throat> so she associates the object with who it belongs to. And this morning, church, I'm here to remind you who you belong to. And I want you to remind yourself every single day who you belong to. So if anyone is to ever bring a charge against you and say, how can God love you? What's that thing in their past, God? Remember that thing that they did? God always associates us with Jesus because we belong to him. Our identity comes from Jesus and who he says we are. We are sons and daughters and friends of the most high God. Everything that belongs to Christ belongs to us, and we belong to him. 
And nothing and no one can ever change that status if you've placed your faith in him. So for us to walk by the spirit and bear much fruit, we must remember, A, to abide, B, who we belong to, and C, to crucify. You see, we have to actively crucify and dismantle the idols that we see in our lives. One of my favorite artists, KB, in one of his songs, he says, my idols are mimicking Jesus. I bury my sin and three days it's back up again. How true is that? You think you've put something behind you. You think that you're not going to fall in this way again. And then before you know it, you're back doing the same thing, walking with the same people. When we read verse 24, it looks like those who belong to Christ Jesus have already crucified the flesh, meaning past tense. We already killed the flesh. We already killed that sinful part of our heart. So why do these desires of the flesh keep returning? Paul knows about this, and we know the reality of it is we cannot go one day without grieving the Holy Spirit or one day without committing some sin. Christians are not sinless, but ideally we sin less. So Paul is not saying that this part of you is completely dead. He is saying that we crucified it once, and we must actively continue to crucify it daily until Christ returns. The victory has already been won, but the battle still continues for now. This does not mean that just trying harder or setting a bunch of rules and boundaries for yourself to keep you from sin is going to help. That's not enough. You must look at this list of 15 works of the flesh above and identify which one of those you see yourself falling into on a regular basis or which one you think could come back up at some point. Then you have to ask the Holy Spirit to identify what specific idol is in your heart that even wants that thing in the first place. And once you've done that, you can dismantle that idol and tear it down by preaching the gospel, the good news to yourself every single day about who Jesus is, what he did, what he's done for you, the relationship you have with him, what he's called you to, and how you can have victory over that thing. Because we know that the true cry of the believer's heart is to be in relationship and know God. These ABCs are practical steps that you can take daily to grow in the fruit of the Spirit and walk by the Spirit so that you can love God and others well. The fruit is your litmus test with how you are doing. But I know that this still may sound hard and unattainable, so I'll come to a close with this. I began the sermon with the story about a tug of war in Austin. But one thing I didn't mention was how the engineers made this annual tug of war event safe and doable. They developed a mechanism placing iron beams between the ropes to minimize the stretch and to handle the force that was placed on them. In a much greater and glorious way, Jesus is our mediator or our person in the middle between our tug of war. Jesus felt the same pressure that we face daily and will face in the future. He even felt the entire eternal weight of separation from God that we deserve. It was put on him on the cross. Instead of our relationship with God being severed and our bodies breaking, his body was broken on our behalf. Instead of us dying in this battle between the flesh and the spirit, 
and our blood being shed and receiving the wages of sin, which is death. He died on that cross so that our sins could be pulled as far as the east is from the west. Paul tells us to keep in step with the spirit, but he knows that there will be times in which we fall out of rhythm and we fail to even do the one commandment that we were given. But Jesus makes our inheritance in the kingdom safe because he already fulfilled every single commandment. So we can place our trust in him. And the degree to which you understand the price he paid for you and the freedom you have because of that will be the degree to which you can walk by the spirit and love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray.